You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, well, we're in Acts 17, uh, as Bob alluded to this morning. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 926 uh, is where you'll find um, today's text. Next week, we're going to actually kick off a summer in the Psalms. Uh, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts before we come back in September and then finish out the book. Uh, but this morning, we're going to close out the first half or so of Acts, uh, looking here at Acts 17 and how Paul and his companions share the message of Jesus in Thessalonica, in Berea, and then in Athens. And let me just set this up this morning uh, by saying this. Of all of the gaps that exist between who we want to be as a church, I'm talking specifically about Liberty Church here in Camp Hill, who we want to be as a church, and who we actually are at present, this might be the biggest one. This might be the biggest gap. Are we constantly finding ways to help people understand the person and work of Jesus? Are we continually sharing the good news of his salvation in our everyday lives? I'm not. I'm not. At least not in that course of of just day-to-day life and living life alongside other people. Sharing Christ and inviting others to believe in him is something that, for me, can sit far too easily on the back burner of, of my life. And I think, if we're honest, that's, that's true for, for many of us, if not most of us in the room. So I just want to start this morning by owning that and apologizing for that gap that I see and that we as elders see in our church, uh, for not me leading our church well in this, even by my own example. Uh, I've been praying a lot this week that the Holy Spirit would grow me and would grow all of us in the way that we actually have this beautiful opportunity to participate in the mission of God by sharing the, the mission's message, the good news of, of Jesus. So let me pray for us now, and then we'll dive right into to Acts 17. Father God, uh, forgive us and forgive me for a lack of zeal for you, uh, for a lack of love for other people. The message of Jesus really is good news for the world. And so for your glory and for both the eternal but also the immediate good of the people that we live here among in this region. I ask that this morning you would help us to begin to see opportunities and then to have the boldness to share the message of Jesus regularly with people. And now, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let me pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Or even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Acts chapter 17 leads us to consider three things about the message of the gospel, the mission's message. The context or how that message is shared in different settings, the content or what that message is, and then the compulsion 
the compulsion or why Paul and why we must share this message. So we'll look at each of those three things. First, the context. The context. Did you notice as we read that Paul's approach to sharing the message of Jesus is different in each of the places he visits? He has some patterns, like beginning in the synagogue to each of these cities that he, he goes to, but sometimes there aren't synagogues. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. And then usually the majority of the people that he spends time with in these cities are, are Gentiles, and so he's not finding those people in the synagogues. In each place, Paul adapts his approach based on who he's talking with. As he keeps in step with the Holy Spirit, he's always seeking to meet people where they actually are and to share Jesus in a way that will resonate and will connect with them and with what they believe. So in Thessalonica, he's given three Sabbath days in the synagogue to teach the Jewish people there. And because these are Jews who already believe the scriptures, the, the books of the Old Testament, that's Paul's starting point. Of course, we know Paul has all of the, the insider information, the insider knowledge in this context. He himself is a Jew. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he describes himself. He studied under Gamaliel, Gamaliel this leading figure of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body in Jerusalem. And Paul himself was not convinced about Jesus until Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. So now he is able to open the scriptures, and it's, as it says there in verses 2 and 3, to reason, explain, prove, and proclaim from those scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited, long-pronounced Messiah. In Berea, his approach is similar. It's, it's at the synagogue, and it's opening up the scriptures. But there's no mention in Berea of him having to reason with people or prove anything. Why is that? Because there's a hunger and a receptivity among the Jewish people in, in Berea. Part of the context is how receptive your hearers are. And there's a spectrum of receptivity from hostile to hungry. The sense that we get from Acts 17 is that in Thessalonica, there's a lot more skepticism, cynicism, and even some outright hostility, as we read, people stirring up the crowds. So Paul has to reason and to prove and to explain a lot from the Old Testament. But in Berea, what is there among the people? Eagerness. Eagerness. Verse 11, all eagerness. The Bereans themselves take the initiative to examine the Scriptures, and not just weekly, not just once a week on the Sabbath, but daily to see if these things are so. No matter where a person or where a group falls on the hostile-to-hungry spectrum, this does not change the truth of the gospel. It does, though, change our approach to how we share it with people. If someone is hungry to know the truth, then all we really need to do is to put the truth in front of them and let them see it and let them learn it. And there is just zero sense, I don't know if you noticed that, zero sense of disappointment from Paul or from Luke, who's writing this book, that the Bereans didn't just take Paul's word for it. So questions... Critical questions, critical examination, that's often a sign of hunger. It's often a sign of hunger. Sometimes when people ask questions about what we believe, it's an excuse. Sometimes it's like the Pontius Pilate philosophy 101 kind of question. I don't know if you remember when, Pilate, when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate and he says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, and Pilate just kind of does an end-around avoidance movie. He just goes, well, what is truth? What is truth? 
Sometimes questions are an excuse, but often they are sincere seeking. It's a sincere hunger. Don't be discouraged when people are critical and ask critical questions and then examine it to see if it's so. Now notice also here how significant a role women played in the expansion of the early church. In Thessalonica and Berea, we see that in both of those places, we saw it in Philippi with Lydia and the women who were gathered by the riverside for prayer. A context includes all of the people that live in that time and place, not just some of them. And in the first century, and and much more recent times as well, it would have been really easy for Paul and his companions, his traveling team of missionaries, to ignore the women that lived in these places. To just focus on reaching men in each of these places. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus had many women that were part of his followers and that were part of the disciples, the early followers of Jesus. And so neither do Paul and these traveling companions. As a result, thank God, the rest of the New Testament and the history of the church is filled with example after example of women as forces for advance of the gospel. Forces for gospel advance. Now for the majority of Acts 17, Paul is not in Thessalonica or Berea, he's in Athens. And you probably heard this as we read, his approach in Athens is very different than it was in those other two cities. He does go to the synagogue first, but he simultaneously starts to go to the marketplace, the agora. And he strikes up conversations there with anyone who happens to be there. In the process, he talks with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and and they have a very different worldview from a Jewish person. In short, Epicureans believe that the highest good in life, the purpose of life, the highest good is to enjoy pleasure and to avoid pain. Stoics believe that the highest good in life is to submit to the will of nature and just kind of go with the flow, to be rather unaffected by whatever happens, kind of a fatalistic perspective. Neither of them believe, and perhaps neither of them know, there in Athens, the Old Testament scriptures. And so with them, Paul doesn't just jump right into teaching like he does in the synagogues. He converses, he discusses with them. You can think about it this way. In the city of Socrates, Athens, he uses the Socratic method and he has discussions with them. And it's only when he's then invited to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, to teach that he shifts from discussion to proclamation. At the Areopagus, then, he shares what one author calls an introductory lesson in Christianity for cultured pagans. For cultured pagans. So in Athens, and at the Areopagus in particular, are some of the most educated, cultured people in the known world at the time. But they're polytheists. They worship multiple gods. They're materialists. They have a very different understanding of the world. Paul's sharing of the gospel in Athens is so different that over the years, certain scholars and authors have questioned the accuracy of this account. Like, this couldn't possibly be Paul who wrote these words. The words are different than Paul's. The approach is different. And whenever I read that, I want to be like, yes, that's the point. That's the point. It's biblical content presented in a Hellenistic way, a way that would actually connect with and make sense to Greek speakers and people from a Greek culture. He wants to share it, the good news of Jesus in a way that the Greek hearers will understand because context matters. 
We'll talk more about the content in a second. But let's always be asking, what is the best way to share the message of the gospel in this time, in this place, and with these people? What's the best way to share the message of Jesus in this time, in this place, and with these people? How can we share in the synagogues, so to speak, whether that's literal or figurative, uh, with people who are practicing other religions? Uh, Even there, are the people that we're talking with hostile, or are they hungry? Are they skeptical? Are they cynical? Are they apathetic? Are they somewhere in between all of that? Let, Let that shape your approach to how you try to share Jesus with people. Or in the agoras, the public places where people gather during times of leisure, coffee shops, bars, festivals, block parties. We probably need to have a whole separate discussion about social media and the opportunities that exist there versus the the dangers that exist there. But what does engaging conversationally look like in these public gathering places? We don't really have a modern equivalent for the Areopagus. A university is probably the closest parallel that we have. A university is certainly a place where different worldviews collide and people talk about them. So how can we help educated, cultured people understand the message of Jesus? All of this to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not one-dimensional. It's not one-dimensional. There are timely ways to share the timeless truth of Jesus. And if we really want people to hear and to understand and to believe, context really does matter. It matters. Second, let's talk about the content. The content or what the message is. In a word, it's Jesus. The content of the gospel message is Jesus and how we enter into and experience his salvation. Charles Spurgeon once said, We preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it, which I think actually might be the first recorded knock of gluten-free bread ever in history. But Spurgeon goes on to say, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I love it. I love it. Why? We use the word gospel for so much these days that it can mean nothing at all. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the finished work of Jesus and that by repenting of our sin and by putting our faith in him, we are forgiven of our sin and we are reconciled to God. That's the gospel. Here's the problem. Billions of people in the world and a bunch of people you and I know and cross paths with every day have no idea what I just said, what any of that means. To them, it's trivial, maybe even nonsensical. Even if they've heard of Jesus, well, what is sin? What is faith and repentance? What God are we talking about specifically? Because there's a lot of concepts about who or what God is. So content and context always go together. In a Thessalonian synagogue, Paul can assume a ton He can go right to the scriptures. That's a massive shared frame of reference. And he can open up from the scriptures Genesis 3 about how an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. Or Genesis 12 about how a descendant of Abraham would bless all the nations of the earth. Or he can open up Exodus and talk about the Passover lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
Or he can open up Isaiah 53 about a suffering servant by whose wounds we are healed. And he can say, all of this is Jesus. And you might reject Jesus, Jews in Thessalonica, but at least you'll understand what I'm saying. In the Berean synagogue, Paul can assume even more because they are eager to examine the scriptures themselves. So he can just say, well, here you go. Read it. Why can he do that? Because scripture is clear. Difficult to understand in certain parts of it, absolutely. But it is clear enough to recognize God's revelation of himself and come to saving faith in him. A hallmark of the Protestant Reformation was the clarity of scripture. That with dependence on the Holy Spirit, with a real desire to know the living God, the scriptures, the Bible, could be rightly understood by ordinary people. Not that we just throw off all of the interpretations and teachings that have gone before. There's a lot to be gained from tradition. But it's not just scholars, it's not just clergy who can understand scripture. Ordinary people, like the Bereans, like us, who are hungry to know and who are dependent on the Spirit, can know clearly who God is and what he's done in the world. But in Athens, which is a lot more like our culture today, he can't just, Paul can't just start with, Scripture says, and launch into an argument. Because for them, who cares? What is Scripture to them? It's not their history, at least the way they see it. It's not sacred to them. Why should they listen to somebody open up the Old Testament Scriptures? And so in Athens, and among the Areopagus, Paul doesn't quote Scripture. Who does he quote? He quotes two poets that were fairly well-known across the Mediterranean world. And instead of starting with Scripture, he starts with common ground. He starts with a shared frame of reference that he can then build upon. Look again at verse 22. This is the shared frame of reference. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You're very religious. In Athens, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing statues and temples dedicated to some god. One ancient writer actually said it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. That's how many gods there were in the city of Athens. The Parthenon, this temple to the goddess Athena that sat on top of the Acropolis, it was visible for miles around. The Agora and the streets were lined with altars and statues. And one of them, as we read here, was dedicated to the unknown god. And there's Paul's opportunity. There's his inroads. Athens admits, at least in some way, an ignorance. Hey, maybe there's a God that we're missing here. A God that we don't know about. And Paul says, there is. There is. Let me tell you about that God. Even still, he doesn't go straight to Jesus. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of so much of God's prior work. He's the fulfillment of that. So if Jesus is going to make sense, it's going to make sense in the context of the bigger story of the redemptive work of God. And so Paul's content in Athens is first about that. It's about God. It's about God's creation. It's about his providence, his ongoing sustaining work of what he's made. It's about God's lordship, that he determines our times and our places. It's about God's fatherhood, that God is the father of all people. In that, he created all people and all people bear his image. And Paul is able to then say through that, this is the insanity 
of gold and silver and stone idols. They are lifeless. They are lifeless while we who bear his image are full of life. And then lastly, Paul can talk about God's judgment and say to the Athenians, he's overlooked the ignorance that you actually admit you have. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent from their rejection of him, from their worship of idols. He will judge the world in righteousness. And it's with this background. See, we think we've only got a tiny bit of all that Paul actually said there in the Areopagus, just just a little bit that Luke recorded for us. But it's with this background that Jesus and the message of the gospel begins to become intelligible, but also significant. No longer trivial, because he's saying to them, it's not okay to remain ignorant. It's not okay to just keep a statue in your city forever that says, well, maybe we missed a God. We'll put a statue here just to cover our bases. And he's saying to them in the same breath, you don't have to remain ignorant anymore because the agent of God's judgment is the very same one who came into the world to rescue. You don't need to be recipients of God's judgment because he, Jesus, was. He took that judgment upon himself and he didn't just die, he rose from the dead. Let me ask you, church, do you understand this yourself? Do you have a grasp of this yourself? Do you understand the gospel message, Jesus and his finished work, in this far wider context of the redemptive story of God. All of scripture, all of history points to Jesus. And when that starts to click, when you start to see how that connects, it will grow your love and appreciation of Jesus exponentially. At the very same time as it does that in your own heart, it will make you so much more effective in sharing Jesus with other people. You'll have a thousand different entry points that you can begin with. You can help people see Jesus in the context of the whole story. You can walk them through from creation to restoration, creation to consummation, the whole story of the redemptive work of God. John Stott says it this way. He says, we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God or the cross without creation or salvation without judgment. He goes on to say, today's world needs a bigger gospel. A bigger gospel. And as a church, for for all the gaps that exist between who we long to be and who we are at present, I think this is actually something we do fairly well. Whether we're in Acts or Psalms like we will be in the summer months, or the Gospel of Mark, or Ecclesiastes, or Judges, we're always trying to help each other see it's all about Jesus. It all points to him. So keep being formed in that. Be eager and hungry to see that and to get this content and the scope of the good news of Jesus deep into your own soul, because that will grow you as both a worshiper and a witness to Jesus. Talked about context and content. Third and finally, compulsion. Compulsion. Why Paul and why we must share this message? I think verse 16, Acts 17 here, verse 16 is hilarious. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, when is Paul ever waiting? Like, when is Paul ever just sitting around? He's always living life with his eyes and his ears and his heart, heart open. He's never going to be the guy in Athens in Bermuda shorts and sunglasses with his tourist map open. Like, let me just check out the sights here for a while until Timothy and Silas catch up. Athens was a beautiful city, especially in the first century. 
And as Paul walks around, he's overwhelmed by it all. But not by the craftsmanship, not by the opulence. What is Paul overwhelmed by? The idolatry. The idolatry. His spirit is provoked. He's distressed. He's angered. He's pained that the city is so full of idols. What is our motive in sharing the message of Jesus? What compels us? Well, in one sense, it's obedience. As his followers, Jesus commissions us to proclaim the good news about him and to make disciples. Deeper yet, our motive is love. When we truly love someone, we want the absolute best for them. We want them to experience the salvation of God, the satisfaction of being known and loved by the creator and sustainer, the father of all. We want people to look to Jesus and live because we love them. But there's actually an even deeper motive than that, and it's love for God. It's zeal for his name and for his glory. When Jesus actually shares the greatest commandment, what is it? It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And Jesus goes on to say, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second goes hand in hand with the first, but there's still a second and a first. That's why Paul is so provoked in Athens. It's why he's compelled, why he must share the gospel. In the face of so much idolatry and ignorance and rejection of the living God, he can't just sit around and hang out and wait for his companions to catch up. Now, in our culture, we have at least as many idols as they did in Athens. Not of silver or gold or stone, but things that take the place of the one true God. Things that we devote our lives to instead of him. Accomplishment or accumulation of stuff. Safety can be an idol. So can independence. Work or leisure. Political or social ideologies. On and on we could go. And the problem is, most of us have become so desensitized to how pervasive idolatry is, we're not provoked anymore. We're not provoked anymore. Or if we are provoked, we're provoked in a really self-righteous way that forgets we're just as prone to idolatry too. That we once were idolaters and that sometimes we still are. Men and women, we have to wake up. We have to wake up. We live in a time and place overrun with idols. Every day, all around you is ignorance and rejection of God and the salvation he holds out in Jesus. And he has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has determined this as your period and your boundary because all around you are other image bearers of God devoting themselves to things that destroy them, to things that cannot possibly give them life. They become, in devoting themselves to lifeless idols, they become lifeless themselves. All around you are people who at present are liable to God's judgment. And he has said he does not overlook ignorance forever. He commands all people everywhere to repent. So out of obedience, out of genuine love for people, but even more, out of zeal for the name and the glory of the one true God, be provoked 
be distressed, be moved, be compelled to find a way with content and context together to share the message of Jesus. Now here's the good news. Verse 27, he is not far from each one of us. God is present in this world. He is not standing far off, holding people back at arm's length. He is present with us, his followers, as we seek very imperfectly to share Jesus with other people. And he is present, he is near to those who at this moment are ignorant of or are rejecting him. In fact, he has put those people there. He has put people here in your neighborhood, in this region, that they should seek God and feel their way toward him and find him and find him. God will be found by those who seek him. So let us be people who help others find him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, our God, you have given to us this glorious gospel of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We were once idolaters. We still practice idolatry in moments of our lives. We forget the the glory that is due to you alone, and we devote ourselves to things that cannot give us life. Forgive us. And in recognizing how lifeless it is to, to worship idols, to devote ourselves to those things, provoke us to love people enough to share the message of Jesus with them. As Rachel read for us earlier, as we believe about ourselves this morning, it is by your grace alone we are what we are. And in the grace that you have shown us, now give us the grace to be your people sent out to share the message of Jesus with the world. Strengthen us now as we come to his table. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.